Welcome to A Look Ahead. We're delighted you've decided to join us. We're studying the Sabbath School lessons as prepared by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And this series, uh, we're in ready for lesson three, is entitled, In These Last Days, The Message of Hebrews. Remember last quarter was talking about Deuteronomy being a message for the last days. Well, here we are, Hebrews, a message for the last days. This lesson is entitled, The Promised Son. It's a lesson for January 15 of 2022, and we begin, as usual, with a word of prayer. Our wonderful Father, as we consider the incredible message of Hebrews here, all that it says to us about you and why you came and what you were doing here and where you are now and what you're doing now. May we comprehend it. May we understand what you want us to know with our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Is the whole Bible for the last days the message for the well, last days? Well, there's a fair question. I it certainly has isn't impl- the whole Bible yes. the message for the last days. It certainly has implications for the last days, doesn't it? Well, before Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden, they had a promise from God that a solution to the sin problem would be coming. That promise was to be embodied in a son, capitalized. Jim? When Adam and Eve first heard the promise, they looked for speedy fulfillment. They joyfully welcomed their firstborn son, hoping that he might be the deliverer. But the fulfillment of the promise tarried. Yeah. Ellen White, Desire of Ages, page 31. Carried is a very <laughs> inadequate thousand years inadequate term probably. Similar promises were made to Abraham, and I could go on to Isaac, to Jacob, to David, etc. And there's a whole list of Genesis 22 and Second Samuel 7, Psalms 89, Galatians 3, on and on. The amazing thing is that none of them recognized not Adam and Eve, uh, not Abraham not David, that that promised seed would be none other than God himself, their Savior and Redeemer. Paul suggested to us that he was living in the last days. What did he mean by the last days? No doubt he thought he was living near the second coming of Jesus Christ. Numerous expressions in the Bible talk about the last days or the latter days in some cases. Some reach all the way down to our day, even describing what's called the time of the end. See Daniel 12.4. What are we supposed to conclude from all these passages? Scripture seems to speak of the last days as beginning with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and continuing through all the events over the next 2,000 years to the second coming. Would you call those the last days? Well, if you're used to thinking in terms of eternity, I suppose that would be. That statement assumes that the second coming is going to be very soon, mm-hmm. to be only 2,000 years after Jesus' death. Yeah. Well, um, And we assume that, but everyone's assumed that for, for a long time. thousands of years. A number of passages in the New Testament teach us that with the promise of Jesus come many other promises. One, a future resurrection. Two, a new creation. Three, New hearts living in full cooperation with God. Four, a permanent and perfect kingdom ruled by Jesus. Five, the second coming. And finally, six, the third coming. And of course, we know that the third coming, the only Bible writer who knew anything about that was 
John. The Apostle John, way near down near the end of his life. So let's see if we can jump back into all of this. Carrie? Reading from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors many times and in many ways through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son. He is the one through whom God created the universe, the one whom God has chosen to possess all things at the end. He reflects the brightness of God's glory and is the exact likeness of God's own being, sustaining the universe with his powerful word. After achieving forgiveness for human sins, he sat down in heaven at the right-hand side of God, the supreme power. The Son was made greater than the angels, just as the name that God gave him is greater than theirs. From American Bible Society, 1992, New, the Good News Translation. Okay, thank you. Clearly, the greatness and identity of God's true Son is the emphasis. While God had spoken to his people in many and different ways in the past, his ultimate revelation was coming through Jesus Christ himself, the divine Son of God. And that promised revelation would be superior to any previous revelation. So why had God failed to accomplish what he wanted to do for the world through his people in the Old Testament? Shouldn't that have been possible? I mean, why not write to Adam and Eve? They had had close communication with God in the garden. Couldn't they have, couldn't God have somehow communicated with them? The great controversy is not just about us on this earth. It's about the entire universe. Yes. And apparently some of the questions, many of the questions, or even most of the questions weren't answered at the time of Adam and Eve, or even Noah, or even Abraham. And even at the time of Jesus, many questions weren't answered. Well, considering that long history of failure, do we dare to speak of God's efforts as a failure? What did he accomplish in the life and death of Jesus that have never been demonstrated even to the onlooking universe? Well, in these verses, clearly Paul is telling us that Jesus Christ, the baby boy born to Mary in Bethlehem, was none other than God himself in human form. At the same time, he was fully human and fully God. And some of you, I hope many of you are aware of the song that's become popular, the Christmas song that's become popular that talks about that, entitled, Mary, Did You Know? And at the end, of course, it talks about, he is none other than the great I am. That's my favorite song. Sometimes God's presence, his glory, is described as fire. Ezekiel and even Paul at the end of Hebrews and other places describe God's presence as a kind of fire. If we, well, let's just look at that really quick. Look at Ezekiel here. The figure seemed to be shining like bronze in the middle of a fire. It shone all over with the bright light, and this is talking about the figure of God, that had in, its, in it all the colors of the rainbow. This was the dazzling light that shows the presence of the Lord. And Hebrews 12:29 as well, because our God is indeed a destroying fire. No doubt this description is necessary because we do not have any other words to describe the light or radiance of God. In any case, the scriptures assert that in his divinity, Christ is an exact equal and a perfect image of God the Father, John 14, 9. 
Another puzzling bit of information from both Old and New Testament is that God created and the Son created. So which was it? Was the Son, and that applies also to his resurrection. Some verses say God raised him. Other places say very clearly Jesus rose in his own power, his own divine power. So which is it? Was the Son only an instrument in God's hands to do the creating? There was perfect agreement between the Son and the Father in the planning for and the carrying out of the creation of our world. But God does a lot more for us than just creating us. Scripture affirms that our entire existence, every day and every minute, is sustained by God. And um, if you have time, you could look at Hebrews 1.3, Colossians 1.17, and I especially like Acts 17.25 and 28. Nor does he need anything that we can supply by working for him, for it is he himself who gives life and breath and everything else to everyone. Dropping down to verse 28, as soon as he, as someone has said, in him we live and move and exist. And as some of your poets have said, we too are his children. And of course you recognize that that was Paul's speech to the um, Athenians there on Mars Hill. And uh, he was starting back from the thing and he was says, look, whether you recognize it or not, you're a part of his family. So, you know, let me tell you about this one who is your creator and sustainer and so forth. Gordon, can you tell us some more? From Ellen White in Review and Herald from 1898, the physical organism of man is under the supervision of God, but it is not like a clock which is set in operation and must go of itself. Let me interrupt there for a second. What group is that describing? Theistic evolution. Not theistic, deistic. Deistic. This is deism. They had that idea that, well, we don't have any other explanation for where we came from, so God must have created, but he's left us alone to our own, you know, devices from that day on, which, of course, is not true. The, continuing, the heart beats, pulse succeeds pulse, breath succeeds breath, but the entire being is under the supervision of God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building, in God we live and move and have our being. Each heartbeat, each breath, is the inspiration of him who breathed into the nostrils of Adam the breath of life, the inspiration of the ever-present God, the great I Am. Again, Ellen White, Review and Herald, November 8, 1898. And repeated in the Bible Commentary. But there's one other challenge with which we need to deal. What did God mean when he said, Today I have begotten you, in Hebrews 1.5. Now you know how that's used by some groups. Um, they believe that Jesus wasn't fully God, that Jesus was a really good person, that God sort of adopted as a secondary God, and not, not fully God. So what does that mean? As we look to Scripture to determine what this expression might have meant to the original hearers, Let's consider that first. Sorry. We realize that on other occasions, God stated that he begat the children of Israel. Now, that's not really true, is it? God also said, I will be his father and he will be my son, speaking of Solomon, as recorded in 2 Samuel 7, 12-14. 
There are several special times when God, when Jesus was adopted, quote, end quote. He was installed in new ways that could fulfill this statement at his baptism, when he began his public ministry here on this earth, when the Father descended upon him and said, This is my beloved Son, Matthew 3.17. However, the ultimate installation of Jesus was when Jesus returned to heaven in his human form and was seated at the right hand of God. There was never a time when Jesus Christ did not exist. We cannot talk about his being born in any human kind of sense. Notice Ellen White's very significant words about the following statement, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That passage from Matthew 3.17. Myra? From Desire of Ages, page 113. The word that was spoken to Jesus at Jordan, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, embraces humanity. God spoke to Jesus as our representative. With all our sins and weaknesses, we are not cast aside as worthless. He hath made us accepted in the Beloved, Ephesians 1, 6. The glory that rested upon Christ is the pledge of love, of the love of God for us. The light which fell from the open portals upon the head of our Savior will fall upon us as we pray for help to resist temptation. The voice which spoke to Jesus says, To every believing soul, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Desire of Ages, Ellen White, page 113. So why was it necessary for God to take this ultimate step of sending his own son to represent himself on the earth? Think of the New Testament parable of the husbandman that Jesus spoke so eloquently who sent his son, own son, you remember in the story, the workers took him aside, took him outside of the vineyard and killed him. Mark 12, 1-9. As we get, scan through the book of Hebrews, we see that Christ is regarded as superior to the angels, superior to Moses, the father of the Hebrew nation, and superior to the prophets. So what did Christ do that made his ministry so superior? That should be question we all should try to answer. He simply was God, and he came to represent God, and who could do it better than God himself? Why, why did Satan in heaven think he was equal to Christ? That's a absolutely, you know, there's no explanation for that. It's just complete nonsense, complete. It looked like every, Michael, or it looked yeah. like everybody else, and... Uh, <laughs> But looking like is one thing. I think behaving is another story. No, I, I agree with your point. Yeah, but though. the uh, uh, all that's all they had was interaction and uh, an observation. Do they have any other qualities? I'm talking about the angelic beings. Uh, they're of another dimension than us. We're in what three three dimension beings. They probably at least a fourth because they not bound somewhat by time and space. But. Uh, yeah. How well, different obviously God recognized that if he stepped down and moved among angels as an angel, Michael the archangel, as an angel among angels, there were some risks in that, and and they happened. There obviously were risks and there were potential rewards. Yes, exactly. What and I God took that risk. Sorry. I could never figure out why Christ, when he... I came out of the tomb 
Some people here and there wanted to touch him. He said, don't touch me till I go home to my father. There's another Why? way. Of, and where? There's another and, way of saying, though, yeah. it don't continue to hold me. It, it, it doesn't necessarily mean touch. No, the, that, that is kind of a poor translation. Yeah, no, it is. Don't detain me. Detain oh. me. It doesn't even have, it the, have anything to do with touch. It's, the Greek words, there's a, a Greek word that means temporary. If something happens right now, it's finished, it's done. That's the aorist tense. And that's the way it's translated in English, but that's not the way it is in Greek. The Greek, it's in a present continuous. So it says, do not continue hanging on to me. Greetings were, took a long time in those days. I mean, you can imagine, Mary, she would just, you know, she would have been there weeping for who knows how long to see Jesus. And he said, no, I, I need to go to heaven right now. So that's, that's a, the, 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 do not touch me is a poor translation. In order to understand clearly the book of Hebrews, we need to understand it in the setting of the first century in which Paul was writing, and also in a much larger context of the great controversy that began up in heaven over God's character and government. The early Christians were struggling with an understanding of how the ceremonial system that the Jews had reverenced for almost 2,000 years should apply to Christians. This led to many discussions and even to some very interesting conclusions at that first general conference session as recorded in Acts 15, 29, and 30. Let's just have a quick look at that. This may be familiar to all of you. You remember that Paul and Silas had gone out. Actually, I'm sorry, Paul and Barnabas initially had gone out. They had done a marvelous work in Antioch in what was then Syria. And uh, people had joined the church it was people were flocking in and Barnabas was sent up from Jerusalem to say tell us what's going up uh, going on up there in, in, in Syria I mean in Antioch it, we hear grumblings and so Barnabas got there and he was so excited about what uh, Paul was what was going on there that the two of them got off and they were blessed by the brethren and off they went off into Gentile territory and then converting Gentiles and the Jews back in Jerusalem, the former Jewish Christians back there must have been apoplectic. Uh, what in the world is these guys doing over there? And anyway, to make a long story short, they came back and, and they said, we need to have a conference in, in, down in Jerusalem. And uh, they Paul went down there, Silas, Barnabas, a group of them, and they said... We have to bring, we have to set the rules here. You know, you have to go through all the Jewish ceremonies before you can become a Christian. Paul says, nothing doing. We're not going to do that. And here was their conclusion. Um, verse 28 and 29 of Acts 15, the Holy Spirit and we have agreed not to put any other burden on you besides these necessary rules. Eat no food that has been offered to idols. Eat no blood. Eat no animal that has been strangled. And keep yourselves from sexual immorality. You will do well if you take care not to do these things with our best wishes. So you can imagine, I, I hope someday that we'll get to see that discussion. I'm sure it was a very animated one. <laughs> well, we're not aware if Paul ever had any idea that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed by the Romans. He died about three years before that happened. However, he died only one year after Jerusalem was besieged briefly for the first time in 66 AD. Did that, that information get to him? What did he know about it? We don't know. He was in Rome at the time? He was in Rome. 
in so prison, as far as we know. Probably the word of the, the victories over Jerusalem came to Rome. Yeah. Don't you suspect? Uh, I suspect, yeah. And it was probably advertised, you know, the army's doing great. And probably more important, to the Christian grapevine, they heard that that all the Christians had followed Jesus' advice from Matthew 24, and when that Roman army initially fled away, uh, they packed up their bags and they moved to a place that's on the eastern side of the, the Jordan, up close near the, near the bottom of, of Lake Galilee. And uh, they were not there when, when uh, the final siege came four years later. I would like to do a couple of detours right now and, and try to bring in some extra things to our lesson. The books of Daniel and Revelation have a number of interesting prophecies stretching down from the history of our world almost to the end. The book of Hebrews describes what will be happening in the courts of heaven during those same times. So a better understanding of Hebrews, along with Daniel and Revelation, might impact us to a considerable degree. And here's what we have from Ellen White, Testimonies of Ministers, page 114, paragraph 3. When the books of Daniel and Revelation are better understood, believers will have an entirely different religious experience. They will be given such glimpses of the open gates of heaven that heart and mind will be impressed with the character that all must develop in order to realize the blessedness which is to be the reward of the pure in heart. Now, Hebrews is going to talk a lot about what's going on in heaven right now. So, open gates of heaven... Is that, is that talking about what's going on right now in heaven? Kind of sounds like it, doesn't it? We have often focused on identifying every horn and every date in, in Daniel and Revelation, but is that what would give, give us an entirely different religious experience? Or do we need to focus on what is happening in heaven as described in Hebrews? And what do we know about the sanctuary in heaven? Moses was told to make a copy which became the tabernacle or tent in the desert. Of course, we recognize that that tiny little tent could not possibly fully represent what is happening in heaven. And remember, what did God say to David? Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of a building are you going to make for me? Well, thinking of all the killing that took place in and around that tent, nothing like that will be seen in heaven. We need to look a lot higher see if we can pull in a bigger story here. So with the great controversy in view, remember that Hebrews is very much about heaven. What is going on up there? If we look at Hebrews 2, 14 to 18, and let's just look at those very quickly. Since the children, as he calls them, sorry, let's put it up better. Since the children, as he calls them, are people of flesh and blood, Jesus himself became like them. That's what we're talking about. Came down to this earth, shared their human nature. He did this so that through his death, he might destroy the devil who has the power over death. So here we see the controversy spelled out briefly. And in this way, set free those who were slaves all their lives because of their fear of death. For it is clear that it's not the angels that he helps. Instead, he helps the descendants of Abraham. But... And Hebrews 4, look at this one. Let us then hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we have a great high priest who has gone into the very presence of God, Jesus the Son of God. Our high priest 
is not one who cannot feel simply for our weaknesses, and we're going to struggle with that in some of our future lessons. On the contrary, we have a high priest who was tempted in every way that we are, but did not sin. Let us have confidence then and approach God's throne where there is grace. There we will receive mercy and find grace to help us just when we need it. Okay? From these passages, we get expressions and symbols about the work of Jesus based on the Hebrew understanding what went on in the sanctuary. So now we're going to struggle in this book back and forth between two different approaches to how to understand Hebrews. One approach is, do we do we take all of what we see in the Old Testament and try to magnify it to tell us what's going on in heaven right now? Or do we turn the other side and say, do we do we take what we know for sure is going on in heaven right now and bring it down to uh, apply it to the book of Hebrews? So we've got two different conflicting kind of approaches to understanding this book. Let's see what we can do with them. How do we know what's going on in heaven now? Well, we, we're going to look our, at some... From our interpretation of other things, right? Well, we have Zechariah 3, which very clearly talks about the judgment of heaven. We have Daniel 7, which very clearly talks about the judgment of heaven. So whatever we say about what's going on in heaven now must include those two at least, shouldn't it? I mean, that's the way I see it. Revelation talks about it. So I think those things have to be included. Well, moving on. How does the death of Jesus destroy the devil? Is that clear in everyone's mind? Do we clearly understand why Jesus came and what he intended to accomplish? And if we are going to include the entire universe in our perspective, it will change our picture. What did the onlooking universe think of? What was happening on this earth before the coming of Jesus? How did they, looking down at us, what did they see? Jim? A crisis had arrived in the government of God. All heaven was prepared at the word of God to move to help to, to the help of his elect. One word from him and the bolts of heaven would have fallen upon the earth, filling it with fire and flame. God had but to speak and there would have been utter been thunderings, lightnings and earthquakes and destruction. We have that right now, don't we? Yeah. The heavenly intelligences were prepared for a fearful manifestation of almighty power. Every move was watched, was watched with intense anxiety. The exercise of justice was expected. Okay, now let's interrupt for a second. Who's expecting the exercise of ju- justice? Angels. The angels. These are, no, this is not Satan's side. This is the heavenly angels. They're saying, God, look at what's going on down there on planet Earth. Why aren't you doing something? I mean, can you put up with this nonsense? Think about the book of Judges. Okay, go ahead. The book looked... The angels. Excuse me, the angels looked for God to punish the inhabitants of the earth. And, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I will send my beloved Son, he said. It may be that they will reverence him. Amazing grace. Christ came... To not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And that's, and Ellen, excuse yeah. me, the heavenly universe was amazed at God's patience and love. Ellen White, Review and Herald, 
July 17, 1900. Uh, yeah. Back there it says a propitiation. You know, I think that comes, I think, from the first time I've seen that was about the uh, 1568 edition of the uh, Geneva Bible. But that whole phrase, that is not in, in Romans yeah. 3. No. It's just made up by somebody who decided to translate. Well, that, that's, that came from the Latin from right. earlier yeah. times. Yeah. But well, it was there again. It was, it was not in the Greek. No. The Latin supposedly no. came from the Greek. So, yeah. you know, a lot of So what's God going to do? The onlooking universe was given a view of God such as they had never seen before. When Jesus cried out, it is finished. On the cross there, they essentially said, you are absolutely right. It is finished. It was finished because they had seen the full truth about God and the full truth about Satan demonstrated on Calvary. Carrie? That which alone can effectively restrain from sin in this world of darkness will prevent sin in heaven. The significance of the death of Christ will be seen by saints and angels. The angels ascribe honor and glory to Christ, for even they are not secure except by looking to the suffering of the Son of God. It is through the efficacy of the cross that the angels of heaven are guarded from apostasy. Now, I'm going to interrupt there for just a second again. Okay, think about what our Christian friends talk say about the plan of salvation. What, what about happened? you and me? It's all about God's forgiveness, about you and me, and so forth, and how God's going to save us, and so forth, and so forth. Well, what happens if all of a sudden you have to include the angels the good angels in that plan. Do they need their sins forgiven? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of some of the Adventist pastors and uh, missionaries that don't understand the Colossians one nineteen and twenty and yeah. Ephesians one nine and ten and so forth. It, yeah. they've been to they've been pastors and they've been at the seminary and they have no idea what, until I I told that to one of them. He said, "No, I didn't have to die for the sinless angels." I quoted Colossians one nineteen and the twenty and Ephesians one nine and ten. And you read that? I stand corrected. <laughs> and he was retired. Uh, yeah. on, on <laughs> okay, Sarah, Carrie, sorry for the interruption. We think of only ourselves as being involved in the plan of salvation. There you have it. We have been very selfish with the plan of salvation. It is for the whole universe. Without the cross, they, the angels of heaven, would be no more secure against evil than were the angels before the fall of Satan. Angelic perfection failed in heaven. The plan of salvation, making manifest the justice and love of God, provides an eternal safeguard against defection in unfallen worlds as well as among those who shall be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That's from Ellen White, The Sign of the Times, December 30, 1889. Now, if you, if you don't recognize how the death of Christ says important things about God and about Satan that would settle every possible question that could be raised against God, you won't understand how it could be an eternal safeguard. But this is... This is a, you know, and I have often suggested uh, uh, something which is maybe seem a little strange to some, but suppose that 
when the great controversy and this Eden, evil and sin and everything on this world are done, suppose God decides to start again creating and he creates another world somewhere with new beings and well, someday one of them decides to rebel. And God, I think, will just say, uh, I think there's something you need to see. Sit down here and watch the history of the last time somebody did this. If After watching all of that, he still wants to rebel, God would simply say to all of us who have been through this, gather around, I want you to see, this guy wants to start the great controversy all over again. What do you think I should do? And we would just say, step back. Leave him to himself. And when we call God stepping back, what do we call that? God's wrath. And what happens when God's wrath is poured out on people? They die. God separates his power of life uh, from a being. And nobody would ask any questions. We would say, that's the right thing to do. They cease to exist. Cease to exist. They don't burn in hell forever. No. They just cease to exist. The onlooking universe was not waiting for another ceremonial system full of confusing symbols. They too needed a clear demonstration of the issues in the great controversy. So what do we mean when we suggest that there is confusion and symbolism? Let's take an example. What does it mean when we say, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, Hebrews 9.22? We're, of course, going to deal deal with that in considerable more detail in the future. The blood that flowed through the veins of Jesus was no different from the blood that flows in your veins. You know, that's a good translation. Is that King James? Look like me, because the remission has to do with healing. Yeah. Okay? Not forgiveness. Yeah. Well, many translations now use, oh, there's no forgiveness. Yeah. No, they, because that's what they want it to say. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a, it's sin is a disease, and what do you need? You need forgiveness? No, you need healing. Yeah. Well, blood cannot give life. Only God can give life. The Bible does not give life. God gives life. But think of what the blood represented. The life and death of Jesus had an enormous meaning. Do we understand it? Okay, Gordon? From uh, Ellen White, Christ's Object Lessons, and similar are in other places. Merely to hear or to read the word is not enough. He who desires to be profited by the scriptures must meditate upon the truth that has been presented to him by earnest attention and prayerful thought, he must learn the meaning of the words of truth and drink deep of the spirit of the holy oracles. Okay, now, does that mean that we need to understand the meaning of all the symbolism, of all the Old Testament stuff that was going on, and whatever, whatever, whatever? Is that possible? <laughs> Not sure. <laughs> well, that's seems to suggest we ought to we ought to be striving toward that goal at least, shouldn't we? Well, what did Paul say in, in uh, Philippians two five? Think yeah. like think like Jesus. Yeah. And uh, how do you do that? John seventeen three and four. Practice. Learn, you know, study Jesus' life and yeah. what, what he had to say. Ellen White spelled out in very precise detail exactly why Christ needed to come and what he accomplished. Satan had been misrepresenting God so seriously that both human and heavenly being, uh, creatures needed answers. The time had, go- had come for God himself 
to re, to respond. Chimera? Yeah. Christ came to represent the Father. We'd be now, oh. I'm going to interrupt you. Yeah, I'm going to interrupt you several times here. Christ came to represent the Father. But why do so many people say, well, Christ came to pay the debt of sin? That's made up. It's a pagan point of view. So, move on. We behold in him the image of the invisible God. He clothes his divinity with humanity and came to the world that erroneous ideas Satan had made had been the means of creating in the minds of men in regard to the character of God might be removed. Wow. We could not behold the glory of God unveiled in Christ and live. But as he came in the garb of humanity, we may draw nigh to our Redeemer. We are called upon to behold the Lord our Father in the person of his Son. Okay. In the Bible we read the expression, to know God is to love him. So why did Christ come here What we from what we've seen so far? Help us know him, right? Yeah. And if we love him, and we if we know him, and we love him, then that's what, life. that's what's required. That's free. eternal life. Yeah, it's exactly. That simple. Okay. Okay. Well, <laughs> uh, we, we are can. called upon. Go ahead. Right? Yeah. We are called upon to behold the the Lord our Father in the person of His Son. Christ came in the robe of fl- of the flesh with his glory subdued in humanity that lost that lost men might communicate with him and live through Christ we may comprehend something of him who is glorious in holiness Jesus is the mystic ladder by which we may mount to behold the glory of the infinite god By faith we behold Christ standing between humanity and divinity, connecting God and man and earth and heaven. Now let me interrupt again. What are we, what's she talking about when she mentions the mystic ladder? The Jacob's ladder. Jacob's ladder. What do we know about Jacob's ladder? There's songs about it. We are climbing Jacob's ladder. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Where did that happen? Jacob was running from his brother. He was about 70 years old at the time, believe it or not. Using a rock as his pillow. And he said, there he's out there. And and there were were lions in that territory in those days. And who knows what other kind of wild animals. And here he is sleeping on a rock. And he sees this vision of a ladder with angels ascending and descending. And he realized that God is reaching down all the way to our level to try to represent himself to us. And he felt protected. Amazing. Okay? Christ came to save fallen man. And Satan, with fierce wrath, met him on the field of conflict. Satan sought to intercept every ray of light from the throne of God. I'm going to interrupt again, sorry. How many times do we know there was a direct conflict between Christ and Satan as recorded in the Bible? Mention, start, the earliest one was Revelation 
12, the battle in heaven, right? That would be the first one. What's the next one you know of? Certainly in the wilderness, the tem- temptations in the okay, wilderness. Okay, but there's actually one before that that we Probably don't the, think about. The baptism? Even before that, they fought over the body of Moses. Okay. And Jesus Jesus won that battle. Jesus won the second battle. Go on. Next one, you mentioned the... Temptations. The temptations, very clearly. And... Crucifixion would be, his, on the cross, would be the next big one. Next huge one. And the resurrection. And of course, the, the crucifixion and resurrection, I think, of together. Yeah, next one. And when will be the last one? Oh, so two more, really. At the second coming, Jesus will take his saints with with him back to heaven, and Satan will be left here. And then, of course, at the third coming, what happens? Evil, sin, all Satan's devices will be gone, right? Okay, Myra, sorry for the interruption. That's okay, but I lose track of where I am. Christ came to save fallen man. Christ came to save fallen man, and Satan, with fierce wrath, met him at Hmm. On the field of conflict. I'm sorry, you are already. Go ahead. Yeah, okay. Uh, Satan sought to intercept every ray of light from the throne of God. What light was that? He sought to cast his shadow across the earth that men might lose the, the true views of God's character and that the knowledge of God might be extinct. Become extinct. Become in, extinct in the earth. He, Satan, had caused truth of vital importance to be so mingled with error that it lo- it had lost its significance. The law of Jeho- Jehovah was burdened with needless extractions and traditions, and God was represented as severe, exacting, revengeful, and arbitrary. Okay, I'm going to interrupt again. Okay. I'll remember how, this. How, how, how often is God represented as severe, exacting, revengeful, and arbitrary, even from Christian pulpits in our day? That's, they've got to cap it off with hell, because that way they get the people to yeah. park with their fire insurance premium. They call mm-hmm. that offerings, but. <laughs> yeah, that's how the. That's a very precious doctrine. St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome was built. Absolutely. Yeah. So forth. Keep them in line. Yeah. Scare the well, daylight out of it. Yeah. And I have said before, and I wasn't the first one who said this, unfortunately, it's impossible to scare the hell out of people. <laughs> Literally. Okay, go ahead. They've tried and continue to try. Yeah, oh, absolutely. People try it every, every day, all the time. He was pictured as one who could take pleasure in the sufferings of his creatures. The very attributes that belong to the character of Satan, the evil one represented as belonging to the character of God. Okay, let's interrupt again. So what's, I'm sorry. Is that right? What we're saying here, so Satan is saying, these characteristics that are really my characteristics, the things that describe me, I'm going to try to use them to describe God. I mean that's as that's about that's about as bad as, as you could possibly imagine, but that's what was happening. Yeah, I kind of see that in our politics. Um, Not just he, in politics, everywhere. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, the at uh, where was it? the very oh, attributes. So 
Jesus came to teach men of the Father to correctly represent him before the fallen children of earth. Angels could not fully portray the character of God, but Christ, who is a living impersonation of God, doesn't that sound like Hebrews 1? <laughs> yeah. Could not fail to accomplish the work. The only way in which he could set and keep men right was to make himself visible and familiar to their eyes. That men might have salvation, he came directly to man and became partaker of his nature. How is it? How, How is, that? is that for a com- comprehensive statement? Okay. So, what's, what's Ellen White saying here that Jesus accomplished? Should the only way he could accomplish it? Yeah. To live as a man and show... Become visible and familiar to, to our eyes. Okay. As the truth about God, really, he's saying, here's the truth. The way he lived, the whole experience from beginning to end. This is, this is what God, in fact, in another place she says, and, and, uh, that I might know on page 338, if the Father had come instead of the Son, it would not have been any different. So all those awful pictures that we, sometimes here from pastors mostly about the terrible things that God is going to do to people and so forth those are pictures of Satan they're not pictures of the true God and Jesus came to clearly I mean there's no way that you could say I mean you know no way you could say that about Jesus and none of the these pastors who are giving these awful pictures they wouldn't say that about Jesus oh no Jesus is not like that Jesus Oh, it's just that father that you have to worry about here. Uh, wrath. That, he yeah. says, you've seen me, you've seen the father. Is he saying, well, I look like the father? I said, I'm the father. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I start again with the only way. We want to hear that one more time. Okay. The only way in which he could set and keep men right was to make himself visible and familiar to their eyes. That men might have salvation, he came directly to man and became a partaker of his nature. That's the comprehensive statement. That okay. the men might have healing instead mm-hmm. of the word salvation. Yeah, well, salvation means healing. I understand. Most people don't understand, though. They mm-hmm. think it's yeah, like throwing a, a life preserver out there. And mm-hmm. Christ exalted the character of God, attributing to him the praise and giving him the credit of the whole purpose of his own mission on earth to set men right through the revelation of God. Okay, I'm sorry I got to interrupt again. How many times now has she said that the purpose of Jesus coming to this was what? To reveal the truth about the Father. It was the only way. And then here she just says the whole purpose of his own mission on earth. Why is that so hard to comprehend? And why is it when there's this kind of a incredible statement is not quoted. It's basically not quoted anywhere. Not even in, not even by the people who claim to represent the writings of Ellen White. Why didn't Ellen White write this in more places, in a more obvious place, like in Desire of Ages or Great Controversy? Well, the idea is spread out there in Desire of Ages. Not just but it would be nice if this had been. Yeah. This is succinct and yeah, it's, direct. It's so, 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 so clear. I mean, in John, I mean, he he understood this. You know, 
quoting Jesus, you know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And, and, you know, one, if you, if you asking me to plead with the Father on your behalf, no, I don't need to do that. The Father himself loves you. You know, there's no, shouldn't be any beating around the bush here. Uh, this is so clear, it seems to, to, anyway, to me. Go ahead, Myra. Okay. In Christ was arrayed before men the parental... Eternal. 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 Eternal grace and the matchless perfections of the Father. In his prayer, just before his crucifixion, crucifixion, he declared, I have manifest thy name, John 17, 6. I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work that thou hast given me to do. Okay, I'm sorry. Got to interrupt again. Okay, this was Jesus praying before he even got to the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's be very clear about that. This is not, you know, after he's dead and risen again. Okay, now I've paid, I've finished, you know, I'm just dying, it is finished. No, this is before he even got to the Garden of Gethsemane. Walked up the hill carrying the what? Cross. And he says, "I have finished the work you gave me." I have finished the work which well, you gave me. I did. Yeah. This was this was, you know, this was his prayer. Yeah. Now, and he uh, never explained what the efficacy of his death was would be. Yeah, he well, not the, not that anybody recorded it. Well, maybe maybe he said something, but no, I agree with you. I it, it was not in the nature of a payment of yeah. a penalty. It was that most most theology come defaults to that position because they have a pagan point of view. Now, I'm going to ask you a simple question. See if you can answer it. I hope so. When was this prayer offered? The one recorded here in John 17? Garden of Gethsemane, wasn't it? Before Gethsemane. Before. In John's Gospel, it's very clearly before Gethsemane. Gethsemane. It's probably on the way from the upper room to Gethsemane. And how would, did they stop and offer a prayer somewhere along the way with all his disciples with him? Is that when he offered this he prayer? Just praying, talking as he's walking along even. And how would John, okay, as he's walking along. So that's the way John would have known to write it. Because John obviously wrote down what he thought Jesus was praying about. Yeah. But you know, we don't, we don't have any words of his prayer in Gethsemane, as far as we know. Well, it says in his prayer before the crucifixion, so you're you're saying it would have been at the, uh, after the upper room, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Good point of view. Anyway, that's that's something I I wish I knew more about, if there's, would help us get any more insights, anyway. Okay. One last sentence here. When the object of his mission was attained, the revelation of God to the world... (laughs) How many times? Yeah. The the Son of God announced that his work was accomplished and the character of the Father had been made manifest to men. Okay. Signs of the Times, January 20. And you can't find that any place except the Signs of the Times document and a few handouts that you've put out over yeah. the years. Okay, it, so it was reprinted in use use instructor one time. One time, it wasn't a use. It was the, the, the followed up of the use that instructor. Was the, it was the uh, what's the? But it's one. in John. I yeah, mean, John says, "I finished my work." 
that thou right. hast given me to do. Yeah. That's right. So why do we not... Oh, but you know, the real reason why Jesus came was to pay for my sins. But where does that come from? It made up. It's I mean, a pagan it's, 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 paradigm that, that most the, uh, most religions, all kinds of religions... Well, do they not have a text for it? I mean, is No, that? no. Just like the word propitiation in, in Romans three twenty five, mm-hmm. it's, it's purely made up. It's a uh, it's not not well, it's part in, of the text. In, in line of, if you believe that you know <clears throat> Jesus came to die to pay the price for my sins, okay, why does that need to be done? Well, let's see. Who could we be paying a price to? It must be the Father. I mean, I mean, who else could you? You can't believe that the devil could force Jesus to come and do this to pay him. Uh, it must be the Father. So, okay, how can we explain that? Well, da da da. God is the judge up there, and He's vengeful and unforgiving, and all those kinds of things. But don't worry, Jesus is up there, and He's pleading on our behalf. And Justice so, demands somebody's yeah, got to pay. That, that that's, that'll that's, get us. That, that, that's the thing, you know. You got to have a perfect thing to cover it all. Yeah. Um, and, and Jesus is pleading for us, as the Father is pleading with us. Mm-hmm. And those verses, all those places where it says Jesus is pleading with the Father, the Greek word means in front of or before. And uh, we're going to get this lesson. I hope you all are listening out there are going to stay with us because the future lessons are going to go into this in considerable depth. Zechariah 3, 1 to 5, if you want to get ahead. And John's, uh, I'm sorry, Daniel uh, 7, verses 9 and 10 tell us exactly how that judgment is taking place. And John, chapter 3, verses 17 to 21. If you put all these verses together, this is not stuff from Ellen White only. Put the Bible picture together. Let's be clear about these things. Well, well, Ellen White. Yeah, Ellen White gives us a nice picture mm-hmm. that we can see succinctly, but it says it in the Bible. Yeah, that's right. Ellen White doesn't the picture of Jesus coming to pay the price. Doesn't that, in some respect, come from a literal in, uh, interpretation of the sacrificial system of yeah. slaying the lamb, and this is yeah. this does away with sin and so on. Yeah. But it, it's a per, it's a sandbox. It's a sandbox illustration and not a correct for people who for people that's as, as much as much they can understand. God says, "Okay, if that's as much as you're capable of understanding, you've been a slave all your life, etc. You're just out there in the desert." Well, okay. Well, I would say that that article th- that we just read from Alan White is the perfect explanation of Romans three twenty five and 26. So this is my good news Bible, not the King James, forgive me. God offered him so that by his blood, that would be by his sacrificial offering, he should become the means by which people's sins are forgiven through their faith in him. God did this. Now, why did he do it? In order to demonstrate that he is righteous. To do what? Who has any questions about God's righteousness? Well, if you know about the great controversy, it's very clear who has the questions about God's righteousness. Satan said it explicitly in the Garden of Eden. And again and again and again. In the past, he was patient. This is God, was patient and overlooked people's sins, yeah? It looked like God says, in the day you eat of it, you will die, you should die. Well, they didn't die. But in the present time, he deals with their sins. What does he do in order to deal with their sins? 
to, in order to demonstrate his righteousness. In this way, God shows that he himself is righteous and that he puts right everyone who believes in Jesus. Imagine that. Three times, God demonstrates his own righteousness. Jesus Christ came to demonstrate his own righteousness in contrast to Satan's accusations. So in order to understand exactly what needs to be done in heaven, we need to examine carefully the words of Hebrew. God is not doing some fancy bookkeeping. We need to understand exactly what has gone wrong in the family of heaven and what needed to be done to make it right. That includes what is going wrong in our own lives. If we are going to clearly understand the book of Hebrews, we need to put it in this larger context. We need to put it together with Romans. We need to put it together with Zechariah, with Daniel, and so forth. Someday, we as Seventh-day Adventists will be known, someday, not saying now, unfortunately, will be known for our clear explanation of the three angels' messages and our picture of God, which is, of course, God's the, the three angels' messages are God's response to Satan's accusations in the previous chapter, Revelation 13. God's response in Revelation 14 is right there. I mean, someday, someday, when will that happen? And will any of us be a part of it? Will you be a part of it? Do we have that privilege? Could it happen in our day? Absolutely. Ellen White once said, we're not put to put it off 10 or 20 years. It could be any time, not just today and tomorrow, but very soon. Let's pray. Our kind and loving Father, <clears throat> what can we say after such a marvelous revelation in, in words? And someday we hope to see it all demonstrated in 3D living color when we see that panorama spoken of in, in Revelation and by Ellen White clearly in desire, in Great Controversy 666. Lord, Forgive us for we fail you, for failing you, and forgive all the people from in the Old Testament for doing such a, a poor job of representing you. We know that you've struggled to get your message through to us, and now, Lord, may it be clear from what we have learned to this day is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.